Thank you, President Kimball. I am grateful this morning, my brothers and sisters, for this great uplifting and inspired message we have heard from our President. As he spoke, I thought in my mind that if all the world would heed his counsel, most of its problems would be resolved. One of the basic tenets of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that we believe in continuous revelation. It is our testimony to the world that God communicates to prophets today the same as he did in ancient times. God's revelations in times past have been sustained and revered in Holy Scripture. New revelation is the mind and will of the Lord through current prophets. And when they speak, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, it is the will of the Lord, the mind of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. This morning we heard from a prophet of God, and he communicated the mind and will of the Lord to all who would listen and receive counsel. Concerning the importance of such an occasion as this, it was President Kimball some years ago who made this observation, and I quote, Sunday night, April 7, the great tabernacle was closed, the lights turned out, and the record machines stopped, the doors locked, another historical conference had become history. It would have been lost motion, a waste of time, energy, money, if its messages were not heeded. In the seven two-hour sessions and the several satellite meetings, truths were taught, doctrines expounded, exhortations given, enough to save the ills, the world from all of its ills. And he concludes, I mean all of its ills. He reaffirmed that in our hearts and minds this morning. I remember hearing President Kimball just the other day quote from Samuel, And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. Today our President has caused our ears to tingle. Now for a few moments I'd like to direct some remarks to parents everywhere in this great listening audience. An oft-quoted passage of scripture and revelation of the Latter-day Saints is one referred to a few moments ago by President Kimball. It's contained in the Doctrine and Covenants, and I quote, And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes that are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism, and of the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the head of the parents. I don't know how many times you've heard this passage of Scripture, and appropriate so, but certainly no counsel could be more timely or pertinent to problems besetting families throughout the world. How many times have parents said to themselves after hearing this message, I know it's true, 
And I know what the Lord expects, but how do I do it? In other words, how do I become an effective teacher of the gospel to my own children? As I have thought about this, it has been my observation that most parents really want to be good parents. Most want to do a better job. May we consider this morning four things that parents can do that will help them to better achieve success in rearing their children in righteousness. First, I would itemize the power of parental precept. Parents teach two ways. The first is by precept, or what we say by way of teaching correct principles to our children. I am reminded of the father who, in gathering his children together one morning, asked, What would you learn of me? The reply came, How shall we care for our bodies? How shall we play? How shall we work together? How shall we live with our fellow men? How shall we pray? How shall we know God? For what ends shall we live? And the father pondered these words, and sorrow was in his heart. For his own life and teaching touched not these things. You may recall the old farmer who had quite a reputation for being a philosopher. He said, You can no more teach what you ain't got then you can go back to where you ain't been. I recall as a young man when I first heard our text quoted from the Doctrine and Covenants, I went to my own mother and exclaimed, Well, Mom, how does it feel to have all my sins on your head? (laughs) Then she taught me the lesson of that passage. She said, Oh, Paul, you forgot to read carefully what the Lord said. He said that the sin be upon the head of parents if they do not teach their children the principles of the gospel. And you have been taught. And I had been taught. Thank the Lord for parents who realize their responsibility to instill in their children the principles of the gospel and who follow the counsel of the Lord's prophets. Parents in the Church today have been counseled to regularly, consistently, and inspiringly hold family home evenings and to take advantage of other great teaching moments to so acquaint their children. The second way would be the power of parental example. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, What you do thunders so loudly in my ears I cannot hear what you say. Will you remember this little couplet? Parents can tell but never teach until they practice what they preach. I'm grateful for the example of a father who is a busy, very busy business executive of a great supermarket chain, still found the time to demonstrate his own concern that groceries were less important than his boy. Like many young men, I once had a paper route and I had to get up early in the morning to deliver them. One morning I woke up and looked outdoors to see one of those torrential Arkansas downpours. I thought we were in for another flood. As I prepared to go out in that rain, my father came into the room dressed in his business suit. Get in the car, Paul, he said. I'll drive you around your route this morning. 
This meant that he'd have to go without his own breakfast. On that morning, in addition to the heavy rain, the papers came late. By the time we had them delivered, it was considerably past the hour that my father had to be to work. And on this particular morning, he had scheduled a very important board meeting. He arrived at the meeting late, walked into the boardroom, and announced, I'm sorry I'm late, gentlemen, but I had to deliver my papers this morning. <laughs> Do you think that there was ever any doubt in my mind as to my father's greatest concern? Interestingly, I don't recall too many lessons my parents verbally taught, but their example is still a part of me to this day. Third, the power of parental love. Recently, I came across a little article by Doris Jenke entitled Saturday with a Teenage Daughter. It seemed all too typical of parent-daughter relationships these days. Let me share it with you. Are you going to sleep all day? Who said you could use my hairspray? Clean the dishes off the table. Turn down the radio. Have you made your bed? That skirt is much too short. Your closet is a mess. Stand up straight. Somebody has to go to the store. Quit chewing your gum like that. Your hair is too bushy. I don't care if everyone else does have one. Turn down your radio. Have you done your homework? Don't slouch. You didn't make your bed. Quit banging on the piano. Why don't you iron it yourself? Your fingernails are too long. Look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> Sit up straight. Get off the phone. Why did you ever buy that record? Take the dog out. You forgot to dust the table. You've been in the bathroom long enough. <laughs> Turn off the radio. Another day gone, and not once did I say, I love you. Too often it is easier to criticize, to point out the faults, than to praise or give love. Mothers and dads, when was the last time you told your children, I love you? A good friend of mine makes it a point every day to find something positive that he can compliment in his children so that he can truly say, I love you. Will you make the opportunity soon? Finally, the power of parental prayer. The Book of Mormon provides a great example of a father who recovered a lost son by the power of personal prayer. The conditions of his time are akin to our own day. Now it came to pass that there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin, being little children at the time when he spake. And they did not believe in the tradition of the fathers. They did not believe what they had said concerning the resurrection of the dead, neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. Now because of their unbelief they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. One of these of the rising generation was Alma the Younger. He was a man of mighty words and did speak much flattery to the people, leading away many to do after the manner of their iniquities. We are further told that he was a great hindrance to the prosperity of the Church of God. 
because of the dissension that he caused. I suppose the tendency then, as it often seems to be today, was to write him off. But you know the miraculous story of how an angel of the Lord appeared to that young man and how he became one of the greatest missionaries in the Church of Christ? What was it that caused that great change to occur? The angel testified to Alma the following. Behold, the Lord hath heard the prayers of thy people and also the prayers of thy servant, Alma, who is thy father. Think of it, the power of parental prayer. As we consider the challenge of rearing children in a world fraught with temptations, false ideologies, and materialistic enticements, do you not feel the need for guidance and inspiration beyond your human capacity? There is no greater help or strength than a father and a mother can obtain than through securing that help from the Lord. Just the other day, a sweet experience occurred. I stood in the presence of a mother and a father who had just greeted their long-lost son home from the wars. I mean the worldly wars. What a tender moment. Consider the counsel of Alma. Counsel with the Lord in all thy doings, and he will direct thee for good. May I testify to all parents of Zion everywhere the efficacy of these great principles in rearing our children righteously, the power of precept, the power of example, the power of love, and the power of prayer. I add my personal witness that Jesus Christ really lives, that his kingdom is here upon the earth and that this morning we heard from his appointed prophet and servant, Spencer W. Kimball. May we abide by the counsel and teachings given to us by the Lord through his servants. I humbly pray as I testify to these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, I'm grateful for that invocation offered by Brother Khan Watanabe, my friend and associate, with whom I have traveled many thousands of miles up and down Japan in the ministry of the Lord. And I have been inspired by the music of this chorus of priesthood holders of Brigham Young University students. If the Spirit will direct me, I think I should like to address my remarks to them, these young men and their counterpart young women. In so doing, I speak also across to youth across the Church. It is springtime in this part of the world, the season when a young man's fancy turns to thoughts of love. It is April when young men and young women dream of June weddings. As an introduction, may I tell of two experiences. The first happened not long ago when I was at the new Washington, D.C. temple. A number of newsmen were present on that occasion. They were curious concerning this beautiful building, different from other church buildings, different in concept, different in purpose, different concerning those who will be permitted within its sacred precincts. 
I explained that after the building is dedicated as the house of the Lord, only members of the Church will, in good standing will be authorized to enter, but that prior to its dedication, for a period of from a month to six weeks, visitors be, will be made welcome to tour the entire structure, that we are not disposed to hide it from the world, but that following the dedication, we shall regard it as being of so sacred a nature that purity of life and strict adherence to standards of the Church become qualifications for admittance. We talked of the purposes for which temples are, are built. I explained those purposes, particularly emphasizing that purpose which appeals to all thoughtful men and women, namely marriage for eternity. As I did so, I reflected on experience at the time of the pre-dedication showing of the London Temple in 1958. On that occasion, thousands of curious but earnest people stood in long lines to gain entry to the building. A policeman stationed to direct traffic observed that it was the first time he'd ever seen the English eager to get into a church. Those who inspected the building were asked to defer any questions until they had completed the tour. In the evenings, I joined the missionaries in talking with those who had questions. A young couple came down the front steps of the temple, and I inquired whether I could help them in any way. The young woman spoke up and said, Yes. What about this marriage for eternity, to which reference was made in one of the rooms? We sat on a bench under the ancient oak that stood near the gate. The wedding band on her finger indicated that they were married, and the manner in which she gripped her husband's hand evidenced their affection one for another. Now to your question, I said. I suppose you were married by the vicar. Yes, she responded, just three months ago. Did you realize that when the vicar pronounced your marriage, he also decreed your separation? What do you mean, she quickly retorted. You believe that life is eternal, don't you? Of course, she replied. Can you conceive of eternal life without eternal love? Can either of you envision eternal happiness without the companionship of one another? Of course not, came the ready response. But what did the vicar say when he pronounced your marriage? If I remember the language correctly, he said, among other things, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, till death do ye part. He went as far as he felt his authority would permit him, and that was till death separates you. In fact, I think that, that if you were to question him, he would emphatically deny the existence of marriage and family beyond the grave. But I continued, the father of us all, who loves his children and wants the best for them, has provided a continuation under proper circumstances of this most sacred and ennobling of all human relationships, the relationships of marriage and family. In that great and moving conversation between the Savior and his apostles, wherein Peter declared, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the Lord responded, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, 
the Lord went on to say to Peter and his associates, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In that marvelous bestowal of authority, the Lord gave to his apostles the keys of the holy priesthood, whose power reaches beyond life and death into eternity. This same authority has been restored to the earth by those same apostles who held it anciently, even Peter, James, and John. I continued by saying that following the dedication of the temple on the following Sunday, those same keys of the holy priesthood would be exercised in behalf of the men and women who come into this sacred house to solemnize their marriage. They will be joined in a union which death cannot dissolve and time cannot destroy. Such was my testimony to this young couple in England. Such it is to you today, my dear young friends, and such it is to all the world. Our Father in heaven who loves his children desires for them that which will bring them happiness now and in the eternities to come. And there is no greater happiness than is found in the most meaningful of all human relationships, the companionships of husband and wife and parents and children. A few days ago, I was called to the hospital bedside of a mother in the terminal stages of a serious illness. She passed away a short time later, leaving her husband and four children, including a little boy of six. There was sorrow deep and poignant and tragic, but shining through their tears was a faith beautiful and certain that as surely as there was now a sorrowful separation, there would someday be a glad reunion, for that marriage had begun with a sealing for time and eternity in the house of the Lord under the authority of the holy priesthood. Every man who truly loves a woman and every woman who truly loves a man hopes and dreams that their companionship will last forever. But marriage is a covenant sealed by authority. If that authority is of the state alone, it will endure only while the state has jurisdiction, and that jurisdiction ends with death. But add to the authority of the state the power of the endowment given by him who overcame death, and that companionship will endure beyond life if the parties to the marriage live worthy of the promise. When I was much younger and less brittle, we danced to a song whose words went something like this. Is love like a rose that blossoms and grows, then withers and goes when summer is gone? It was only a dance ballad, but it was a question that has been asked through the centuries by men and women who loved one another and looked beyond today into the future of eternity. To that question we answer no and reaffirm that love and marriage under the revealed plan of the Lord are not like the rose that withers with the passing of summer. Rather, they are eternal as surely as the God of heaven is eternal. But this gift, 
precious beyond all others comes only with a price. With self-discipline, with virtue, with obedience to the commandments of God. These may be difficult, but they are possible under the motivation that comes of an understanding of truth. Brigham Young once declared, There is not a young man in our community who would not be willing to travel from here to England to be married right if he understood things as they are. There is not a young woman in our community who loves the gospel and wishes its blessings that would be married in any other way. Many have traveled that far and even farther to receive the blessings of temple marriage. I have seen a group of Latter-day Saints from Japan who had denied themselves food to make possible the long journey to the Hawaii temple. In London, we met those who had gone without necessities to afford the 7,000-mile flight from South Africa to the temple in Surrey, England. There was a light in their eyes and smiles on their faces and testimony from their lips that it was worth infinitely more than all it had cost. And I remember hearing in New Zealand the testimony of a man from the far side of Australia who, having been previously sealed by civil authority and then joined the Church, with his wife and children had traveled all the way across that wide continent, then across the Tasman Sea to Auckland and down to the temple in the beautiful valley of the Waikara. As I remember his words, he said, We could not afford to come. Our worldly possessions consisted of an old car, our furniture, and our dishes. I said to my family, we cannot afford to go. Then I looked into the faces of my beautiful wife and our beautiful children, and I said, we cannot afford not to go. If, if the Lord will give me strength, I can work and earn enough for another car and furniture and dishes. But if I should ever lose these, my loved ones, I would be poor indeed both in life and in eternity. How short-sighted so many of us are, how prone to look only at today without thought for the morrow. But the morrow will surely come, as will also come death and separation. How sweet is the assurance, how comforting is the peace that come from the knowledge that if we marry right and live right, our relationship will continue notwithstanding the certainty of death and the passage of time. Men may write love songs and sing them. They may yearn and hope and dream. But all of this will be only a romantic longing unless there is an exercise of authority that transcends the powers of time and death. Speaking from this pulpit many years ago, President Joseph F. Smith said, the house of the Lord is a house of order and not a house of confusion, and that means that there is no union for time and eternity that can be perfected outside of the law of God and the order of His house. Men may desire it, they may go through the form of it in this life, but it will be of no effect except it be done and sanctioned by divine authority in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In conclusion, may I leave you a story? It is fiction, but in principle it is true. 
Can you imagine two young people at a time when the moon is full and the roses are in bloom and a sacred love is matured between them? Johnny says to Mary, Mary, I love you. I want you for my wife and the mother of our children. But I don't want you or them forever, just for a season and then goodbye. And she, looking at him through tears in the moonlight, says, Johnny, you're wonderful. There's nobody else in all the world like you. I love you, and I want you for my wife, for my husband and the father of our children, but only for a time, and then farewell. That sounds foolish, doesn't it? And yet, isn't that in effect what a boy says to a girl and a girl says to a boy? In a proposal of marriage, when given the opportunity of eternal union under the new and everlasting covenant, but rather they choose to set it aside for a substitute that can last only until death comes. Life is eternal. The God of heaven has also made possible eternal love and eternal family relationships. God bless you, my dear young friends, that as you look forward to marriage, you may look not only for rewarding companionship and rich and fruitful family relationships through all of your mortal days, but to an even better estate where love and treasured associations may be felt and known under a promise given of God. I bear witness of the living reality of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom this authority has come. I bear witness that his power, his priesthood are among us and are exercised in his holy houses. Do not spurn that which he has offered. Live worthy of it and partake of it and let the sanctifying power of his holy priesthood seal your companionship. For these blessings I humbly pray in your behalf as I bear testimony and witness of these truths in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years less than... 2,000 years ago, this very day, the initial events of the most important week in human history began to unfold outside of Jerusalem near the little village of Bethany. Jesus of Nazareth was scarcely a three-year ministry among his countrymen, left the home of his friend Mary and his three friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and walked resolutely toward the gates of Jerusalem. Some of the inhabitants of that ancient city considered him to be a blasphemer, a demon, a transgressor of Jewish law. Others believed him to be a prophet, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Whatever the opinions may have been, all Judea knew this man who taught with power and authority. He was neither scribe nor Pharisee. And the Jews' Passover was near at hand, John records. 
And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Jewish law required the attendance of all adult males at this, the most sacred of Israel's ceremonial commemorations. But members of the Sanhedrin had openly vowed to put Jesus to death, and the likelihood of his appearance at such a public gathering was doubted by many. The feeling of danger for him was everywhere present. But Jesus did come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, not with pomp and ceremony, but on a lowly donkey, the symbol of humility and peace. A great multitude went out of Jerusalem to greet him, spreading branches of palm trees before his path and crying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Matthew records that all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. To all who had knowledge of the law, this was the triumphant entry of Israel's king long predicted by the prophets and long awaited by Israel's seed. The multitude was jubilant and vocal. Jesus was regal and silent. Indeed, as he approached the city, so highly favored of God, he wept for Jerusalem, saying, For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Jesus also knew of his own impending fate. He spoke in parables of grain which had to die before, uh, to, to, in order to bring forth fruit, and of a chosen son sent by his father into the family vineyard only to be killed as the father's servants uh, before him had been killed. At times the burden seemed almost too heavy to bear. Now is my son, my soul troubled, he admitted. Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. His singleness of purpose and unwavering commitment to do the will of his Father carried him forward. As his own mortal future dimmed, he gently declared, I am come a light into the world, and whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Such statements were uniting his enemies against him, yet he proclaimed, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. Hoping to trap Jesus in his utterances, some of the shrewdest of his adversaries opposed to him double-edged questions on political and rabbinic law. 
One group of Pharisees and Herodians asked him a most diabolical diabolic question. Master, we knowest that thou art true and teachest the ways of God in truth. Tell us, therefore, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? If he were to answer yes, he would easily be accused of betraying his heritage among Abraham's seed. The very group staggering under the oppression of Roman law, if he were to answer no, he would immediately be apprehended as a political agitator. He answered neither, but rather asked to be shown a coin by which such tribute money was paid. Holding the piece of money up to his accusers, he asked, Whose is this image and superscription? Of course, they answered, as any child in the street could have, it is Caesar's. With that single question, he had taken command of the confrontation. He returned the coin, saying, Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, as if to say, The man's name and picture are on the coin. Surely it belongs to him. Please be kind enough to return it to its rightful owner. Brilliantly, he had destroyed the ploy of his oppressors. But that was never his true mission nor desire. These two were sons of God. These two were among those he came to save. He feared for them and loved them even in their malice. As they turned away, he added a plea, and render unto God the things that are God's. As the coin bore the image of Caesar, so these and all men bore the image of God, their heavenly Father. They had been created by him in the likeness of his image, and Jesus was to provide a way for them to return to him. Yet when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. A short time later, a lawyer baited a theological trap for him, saying, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? Legal scholars had divided, subdivided, and categorized the original Mosaic Code to so, mute, so minutely that some parts of the law seemed to be in direct opposition to other parts. But Jesus would not be paralyzed by the jots and tittles of legal debate. In a single stroke, he penetrated to the heart of the law and integrated those several parts into its one great whole. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Again, Jesus had turned a question full of venom and envy and technical deceit into an answer of love, compassion, and lofty vision. As the final hours of his earthly mission came upon him, Jesus turned away from the multitudes and sought only to strengthen his disciples. He warned them of what lay ahead. He spoke of Jerusalem's destruction and of the distress and apostasy that would precede his latter-day return to the earth. 
He spoke of a master who would, after a long time in a distant country, come and make a reckoning with his servants, each according to his ability and the talents given him for investment in a worthy cause. He spoke of a shepherd who would separate his sheep from the goats, the former being those followers who gave meat to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothing to the naked, and attention to the afflicted. He spoke of virgins attending a wedding, some of whom had sufficient oil for trimming their lamps, while others saw their meager supply depleted because the bridegroom tarried longer than they supposed. Thus Jesus taught his disciples to watch and pray. However, he taught them that prayerful watching does not require sleepless anxiety and the preoccupation with the future, but rather the quiet, steady attention to present duties. As the hour of sacrifice approached, Jesus retreated with his twelve apostles to the peace and privacy of an upper chamber. There the Master sought to fortify his special witnesses against the snares of the evil one by laying aside his outer garment, girding himself with a towel, and washing the apostles' feet. This magnificent gesture of love and unity was a fitting prelude to the paschal meal that followed. From the time the firstborn of the faithful children of Israel had been passed over in the destruction brought on Egypt by Pharaoh's intransigence, the Passover meal, with all its symbolic emblems and gestures, had been faithfully observed by Israel's families. How fitting it was during the observance of this ancient, ancient uh, covenant of protection that Jesus should institute the emblems of the new covenant of safety, the emblems of his own body and blood, as he took the bread and broke it and took the cup and blessed it. He was presenting himself as the Lamb of God who would provide spiritual nourishment and eternal salvation. With the new covenant came a new commandment. Jesus said his disciples must love one another as I have loved you. And by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. To the very end of his mortal life, Jesus was demonstrating the grandeur of his spirit and the magnitude of his strength. He was not, even at this late hour, selfishly engrossed with his own sorrows or contemplating the impending pain. He was anxiously attending to the present and future needs of his beloved followers. He knew their own safety, individually and as a church, lay in their unconditional love one for another. His entire energies seemed to have been directed toward their needs, thus teaching by example what he was teaching by precept. He gave them words of comfort and commandment and caution. Let not your heart be troubled, he said. 
for he sensed their fear and sorrow. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. These things I command you that you love one another. On this night of nights, as the little group approached the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus might have asked his apostles to pray for him, to strengthen him for the unutterable task ahead. But instead, Jesus prayed for them and for those like them. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, records John, who was there to hear it, but I pray that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of this world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Having offered that magnificent intercessory prayer, Jesus went on to face alone his anguish of body and spirit. A modern apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ has written, Christ's agony in the garden is unfathomable by the finite mind, both as to intensity and cause. In that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors that Satan could inflict. In some manner, actual and terribly real, though to man incomprehensible, the Savior took upon himself the burden of the sins of mankind, from Adam to the end of the world. From there it was only a matter of hours until he was falsely accused, illegally tried, and unjustly crucified. He did, not, he did what no other has ever done. He arose from, on the third day from his own tomb, a tomb once again filled with the light and the life of the world as he ascended to his Father, Jesus of Nazareth, was now Jesus the Christ. He had conquered death. In contrast to the haste and busy affairs of our day, his life was one of simplicity. He lived in humble circumstances. He had not surrounded himself with the proud and mighty of the, of the earth, but with the poor, the humble, and those of modest circumstances. There was nothing complicated about his life or teaching. The words he spoke relate to people of all walks of life, to all those who listened in his day, and to all those who will listen today. History bears well the burden of providing ample evidence of his death. As surely as I know he died, I have the quiet yet 
positive assurance that he lives today, the Savior of every person who has born or will be born upon this earth. As we now enter the Passover week of old, may we think on the resurrected Christ, the living Son of the living God. May we, in his name, unite our hearts, love one another, and keep his commandments is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.